2: and definitely check out those shows as well. Geraldine Brooks is the author of Horse, a novel. Australian-born Geraldine is an author and journalist who grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. She attended Bethlehem College, Asheville, and the University of Sydney. She worked as a reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald. She won the George Shackleton Australian News Correspondent Scholarship, and she was a journalism master's program attendee at Columbia University in New York City. She worked for the Wall Street Journal. She covered the Gulf War, where she got an overseas press club award along with her husband, Tony Horowitz, and then was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction in 2006 for her novel March. Her novels People of the Book, Caleb's Crossing, and The Secret Cord* All were New York Times bestsellers. Her first novel, Year of Wonders, is an international bestseller translated into more than 25 languages and currently optioned for a limited series by Olivia Coleman's production company. She is the author of the nonfiction works Nine Parts of Desire, Foreign Correspondence, and The Idea of Home. Brooks married fellow journalist and author Tony Horwitz in Tourette-sur-Loup, France in 1984 and were together until his sudden death in 2019, which we talked about. They have two sons, Nathaniel and Bizu. She now lives with a dog named Bear and a mare named Valentine by an old mill pond on Martha's Vineyard and spends as much time as she can in Australia. In 2016, she was named an officer in the Order of Australia. Welcome, Geraldine. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your beautiful and amazing new book called Horse.
3: Well, it's great to be here.
2: I just was blown away by not only the writing of it, but the intersection of all the stories and how the whole plot unfolded the whole way through and how you were able to get us to attach to characters in the present day but also go on this sort of mystery hunt for how this painting came to be in the world and then tie everything together, it was bravo.
3: Well, thank you, thank you. You know, it wasn't clear to me how it was all going to come together. I had to sort of pick away at the stitching bit by bit and just take it on trust that eventually I would find how these stories were going to connect, but it took quite a long time into the writing to get to that point. So I was kind of hanging by my fingernails there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And here I thought you had it all figured out from the first minute. So (laughs) would you mind telling listeners who aren't familiar with horse yet? What inspired you to write it and generally what it's about?
3: Okay. So I, I became horse crazy in my mid fifties. This was, this was the direction my midlife crisis took. (laughs) And I I got a horse and it was fairly comical because I didn't know what I was doing. But in any case, it became all I wanted to think about was this horse and learning to ride and learning about horse care. And I wasn't getting any actual writing done. And then luckily, I just happened to be at a lunch at Plymouth Pawtuxet Museum And there was an official from the Smithsonian there, and he was regaling the table with the story of how he'd just delivered the skeleton of the most famous racehorse of the 19th century from an attic in Natural History Museum in Washington to the International Museum of the Horse in Kentucky. And as he told the story of this horse's incredible career and then what happened to it during the Civil War, my lunch was uneaten. I'm leaning forward, and I knew that I had my next book and that it would unite my new passion with actual productive labor. So it saved the family finances.
2: (laughs) Wow. Did you ever see, did you, well, first of all, did you get to see the, the skeleton?
3: Oh yes. I, I went to Kentucky and, you know, did a lot of research there about horses and horse breeding and foals and all the things that I needed to know but I also went to the Smithsonian in Washington where they have the laboratory that preps bones for scientific study so that was such an extraordinary research experience because the Smithsonian the museums that you see on the mall they're just the tip of the tip of the iceberg and out in suburban Maryland there is this miles of campus where they have scientific research labs and storage pods but 98% of the collections that they keep out there so it is a, it's a chamber of treasures and scientific wonders and it was just terrific to be there.
2: I've spent a lot of time at the Museum of Natural History with all my kids doing classes there and everything else and I've had the opportunity to go back and see some of you know the the stockpile, and you realize how just how vast. Hearing about their collection and just the it's just insane how much material and history is stored there and offsite, and it's just amazing.
3: And how much science that they're doing there too. Yes, I was I was I was researching. You know, this is, this is a multi stranded novel, and it's about. It's about science and it's about a resource and it's about art as well. So I was researching how they would clean a painting and as well as how they clean bones, which is actually done by a room full of domestic beetles that <laughs> eat, eat the bones clean, which is when you surrounded by all this high-tech scientific equipment, but that's still the best way that they've come up with to clean bones. Wow.
2: Well, your novel, yes, is about a racehorse, but also about race and how that factors in to everything. I felt like it was hard to know reading if you were black or not black as an author, because the experience that you gave to Theo and his whole, even the littlest things, like how he trains himself. And Theo is one of the main characters in the present storyline, When he gets these microaggressions hurled his way, that he can, you can see the flash of anger, but then he just like gets right over it and and moves on.
3: That he's learned that he, you know, for his own safety and well being, he has to appear to get over it.
2: Yes, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yes, I meant on externally the the face. He he changed the his face to mask quickly and. You see this, obviously, through to the end, which I, I won't say anything, but, you know. How did you get into his character? Were you at all worried about writing from the point of view of a different race from your own? And tell me about that.
3: Yeah, no, I was, I was terrified, actually, because you know I, I'm very aware of the discourse about writing outside of your own identity. But if I was going to write this book, because the black horsemen was so absolutely fundamental to the success of Lexington and to the thoroughbred industry in the 19th century, their skills and expertise were plundered because most of these people were enslaved or formerly enslaved by white owners who drew immense prestige and, and material wealth from their thoroughbreds, because racing in the 19th century was huge. It's it's hard to overstate what a national passion it was, and it crossed class lines, it crossed racial lines, but it was built on the, on the skills of black horsemen, and I couldn't leave them out of the story. I, they were fundamental to the story. So once you're telling that story, you can't then, if you're going to have a story that comes into the present time, which I wanted to do around the science, you can't, just pretend that that all stopped in the 19th century and that racism is over and done with. So I knew I was going to have to engage with it in the present storyline as well. So I relied on the absolute generosity and forbearance of black friends who shared their experiences and who read early drafts and said, that's crap and (laughs) "And you need to do this and you need to do that. And they were just... They were just, you know, I couldn't have written this book without them. And I know how tiring it is to always be explaining our own racism, explaining racism to white people. (laughs) So I was just really grateful. But living here at um, Martha's Vineyard, there's been a black community coming here in the summers for more than a century. So I'm lucky that I've got to know so many interesting people here and... What I've learned is that no amount of education or affluence is going to protect you if your skin is black. And um, the most famous example is Professor Henry Lewis Gates, who is a summer resident here, and I think we all remember when he was dragged off his own porch in Cambridge in, in handcuffs for committing the offence of trying to open his own front door.
2: Unbelievable and crazy, and I just... I feel like you did such a a wonderful job of putting the reader in Theo's shoes and letting us live life like that, changing
0: everyone's vantage point into it. So I thought that was wonderful. Ready to pop the question?
4: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Wonderful.
2: I also, (laughs) I love how Jess... Sees people now in terms of how their bones are put together. Like the comment she made early on to Theo about, "Oh, well, you must be able to to run very well. Look at the mechanics of your legs." You know, uh, I'm like, "Wow, maybe I, you know, there's a reason why I'm not a great runner." You know, <laughs> it's not my willpower; it's my short legs. What you know? What are you gonna do? I so I want Jess to like give me some sort of uh, excuse. <laughs>
3: Well, it was fun it was fun creating Jess because I had so much research to do on the other characters that I thought I'd give myself a break and base her on, on me. So she's socially awkward, nerdy person. <laughs> <laughs> and she just loves the interior architecture of living things. So that's why she works in osteo preparation at the Smithsonian. She's just wonderful at articulating bones so they show what the creature was like when it was alive. And so, yes, so when she looks at people, she's always seeing through the flesh to the bones. And she's very impressed by people who have excellent uh, rotational ability.
2: (laughs) 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 Oh, I love that. It's like, leave it to a good book to to have you look at the world differently, even just joints. (laughs) I was hoping to read this one Paragraph from the afterword, if that's okay with you. You said, I started this novel with the encouragement of my husband, Tony Horowitz, the true historian in the family. He hadn't been crazy about my previous novelistic plunge into myth and biblical history, but thoroughly embraced my engagement with a more recent period he knew and loved. Often, a pertinent article or a promising source he had ferreted out would land on my desk. Together with Bizu, we traveled to Kentucky, where our research often intersected in intriguing ways as he followed the trail of Frederick Law Olmsted for his book, Spying on the South. Back home, Tony's quips would keep me on task if I procrastinated. Doesn't look like horses galloping to the finish line today. Tony died suddenly on book tour, not long after speaking to an enthusiastic audience at the Filson in Louisville, my partner in love and life. I miss him every day. Oh, I am so sorry.
3: Yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a tough three years, really. And, you know, the first year I was just in shock and disbelief because we didn't know that he had anything wrong with his heart. And he was a gym rat. He went to the gym maybe six times a week. And he, this was probably, in retrospect, not very good for his heart. He used to get on the machines and watch Fox News to get revved up. <laughs> 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 he hated Fox News so much. And so, uh, anyway, he was very fit, and it was just a total shock for me and the boys. So, we're still clawing our way back. You know,
2: how is it trying to throw yourself into a massive intellectual project and finishing that while going through grief?
3: Yeah, you know, at first I couldn't focus at all, but eventually the book became the lifeboat that I crawled into because I got some advice from a friend who had recently lost her husband and she got the advice from Ruth Bader Ginsburg who had said do your work it might not be your best work but it'll be good work and it'll be what saves you Mm. and it turned out it was and you know because Tony liked this idea so much and he'd been so instrumental in helping me with the research in the early stages of it so I wanted to do as good of a job on it as I could because it was our last thing that we would be able to do together.
2: And so you wrote from the heart the, the, the scenes with, with grief, that there were scenes involving grief on a macro level and maybe you were channeling that or was that already all written?
3: No, all of that, all of that came later. So yeah, it, it, it affected the book the trajectory of the story immensely.
2: And how do you go forward from here? What are the things you tell yourself when you're having like really tough days? And we don't have to talk about this anymore.
3: Yeah, no, I rely on, you know, I've become maniacal about work. <laughs> I used to be a, a procrastinator and, you know, I'd go out in the garden to prune one little branch that was bugging in. and I'd still be out there four hours later, but I've just found that I want to be immersed in writing right now, um, it it does seem to be the thing that helps the most.
2: And how did you how did you meet him originally?
3: How did I meet Tony? I yeah, at graduate school, we were both coming to Columbia University from from other jobs. We'd been out of college, and I'd gone to work as a newspaper reporter in my hometown, Sydney, Australia, and he'd gone to work as a labor organizer for a union of mostly black woodcutters in Mississippi and that was a very stressful job and also he realized it was going to be a long slog to change the world that way so he thought journalism might be a better path so I loved his left-wing politics and I loved his tanned forearms when he came back from spring break he'd been making a documentary about the woodcutters in Mississippi <laughs> <laughs> yeah. gorgeous tanned forearms so I think that was what really got my attention.
2: I I I I think forearms are like a huge, you know, barometer for the whole body.
3: (laughs) They're underrated, I think.
2: Underrated, yes. (laughs) All the way up to the elbow. Men, start fine tuning your forearms, you know. (laughs) Well, well that's I mean, so sad, but how wonderful he sounded really funny and
3: Oh, he was he he that's what I miss the most is the humor. He was hilarious, and thankfully we've still got his books, so the boys and I pull out favourite bits and read them and get a real belly laugh, and so it's great to have that way of being able to connect with him.
2: And hopefully one of, at least one of your sons maybe has the sense of humour, hoping, oh, maybe? Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. My youngest son is absolutely hilarious. My older one too, but the younger one's really, he's, he's, he's quick on his feet.
2: so now with horse in the world what have people been responding to it the way you imagined or have there been surprising has there been surprising feedback to you what's it been like
3: i've been really grateful for the overall reception and the only blowback i've had is from the right which i did not see that coming but there's so much racism in this country and so I've been getting, you know, some mail about being out of the police and that, you know, I, I don't want to speak specifically because these are plot points in the book. And, you know, I thought that, you know, I might have trouble from the other direction. <laughs> so I, I, I welcome it. You know, I welcome this discussion.
2: And, uh... Do you miss being in this novel all the time, or are you happy to lay it to rest and work on the next?
3: Oh um, yeah, no, I've i already finished another project, so.
2: Oh my gosh. So it's,
3: uh, it's just a short. It's really an extended essay. That that book is coming out in November, and uh, then you know. No, I, I I enjoy this part actually. It's really fun to get out and meet readers and booksellers they're my people and we've all been stuck alone in our rooms for ages well as a novelist you're always working alone in your room but uh, my son just went that way making faces
2: (laughs) turns out this is family hour on our podcast today so you know (laughs) tell me about the book that's coming out in november
3: Oh, it's, it's, it's part of a series in Australia where they get one writer to appreciate the work of another. And so I have done one of my favorite Australian writers, Tim Winton, who's nowhere near as well known in this country as he should be.
2: Interesting. And then what's coming after that?
3: After that, I can't tell you. It's a project that's very different, and it's another nonfiction project, and I have to go to an island off the coast of Tasmania in order to do it.
2: Whoa. Okay.
3: <laughs> That's all I can say about that one because it's, it's very much still in an amorphous state, but then after that, I've got a, another historical novel.
2: See, there you go. Throwing yourself back into work. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> At least you're doing something that the rest of us can benefit from.
3: Well, I hope, I, I hope so and enjoy, you know, so, cause I, I love a good book myself, so it's good to, you know, hopefully give other people the same pleasure that I get when I get lost in a book.
2: Have you read anything great lately?
3: Yeah, I loved a book called uh, Sorrow and Bliss by Megan... Mason. Mason. Yeah,
2: yeah. that was great. I love
3: that. It's, it's so unusual because it's a funny book about depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, the last book that just... Blew my head off was the other story. Mm-hmm. I'm still reeling from
2: that one. Wonderful. I actually just wrote a memoir that came out in July all about my love of books. So oh, I. <laughs> what's it called? It's called Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah. Oh, yes. I will My homage to all the books in my life and <laughs> all of that. So. but I turn to writing and reading and work when I am going through grief or loss or stress or, you know, pandemics or whatever. I I think it is a, like it's a a PG rated escape. (laughs) Yes. Anyway. Well, I'm honored to have spoken to you. This book was such a masterpiece. I'm so glad I had time to read it and enjoy it and learn so much. And it was like a, it was such a wow to me. So thank you so much.
3: Well, thank you. Very
2: much. I enjoyed
3: talking to you. Thank you. And me and Sadie. <laughs> and Mateo. Yes, so. yeah.
2: <laughs> Mateo the monkey. All right, take care. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.